Hey everybody, welcome to Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. I really want to thank you for listening. If you feel compelled to do so, make sure you subscribe, uh, leave a review, comment, share, whatever you feel like doing. Help me out trying to grow this podcast, trying to continuously deliver value. A couple of things before we get into the show, check out the links in the show notes to my CRA Academy, my CRC Academy, both of them doing very well as far as getting people jobs in the marketplace. Check those out. Also, if you need help getting studies for your site or anything else, or even launching a site, basically any help for your site, we have a low monthly fee consulting service where we have helped many clients become and continue to be successful site owners through our background efforts of business development and support staff. Text me 949-415-6256. Please check out the links in the show notes as well for the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research. It's been selling really well, getting very well received by the community. Thank you guys so much for that. Also check out the YouTube member page. Join this channel to get perks. That's my YouTube uh, membership. It's 10 bucks a month. You get a monthly mastermind exclusively. It's a Zoom call every month with other YouTube members. Uh, You also get weekly videos exclusive to the YouTube members on how to use social media to improve your opportunities in life sciences. So check that out. Really means a lot to me. And thank you so much again for listening and enjoy the show. Marlene, thank you so much for being one of my connections and reaching out and we can't wait to have you on the Latinos in clinical research because the Afro Latino, like you were saying, super underrepresented. We're going to get into your career and this interview is more about you and your career and like how to make things practical for people trying to get in. But why don't you maybe start out with what you learned from the diversity summit and, you know, what your passion is now for like underserved. I mean, I'm being educated on this stuff too. underserved group. Afro-Latinos in research like that's nobody really talks about that you and like uh, like a handful of people at best I've heard mention this in my entire life yeah well just definitely thank you for having me that's pleasure to be here um yeah and this came up for me you know to like reach out and I've been following you for a while but I went to this summit to this conference and it was all about diversity and inclusion But while being there, I still didn't feel completely included, right? So I felt like Mm. they were still missing some diversity. How so? Like, what did you, let's talk about your emotions real quick. Like, what what were you feeling when, first of all, why did you go? Let's start with that. Well, I work for a CRO and because it's a topic that really has my attention and has a passion of mine, um, there was an opportunity. So I just reached out to my manager and I knew, you know, a couple people from our CRO were actually going to be attending and actually presenting there. So, you know, I reached out and they said, sure, you know, you can attend. I mean, I'm in central Florida. This was in Austin. So I had to, you know, take a flight and go all the way there, which complicated things with work. But at the end of the day, I think it was worth it. And I just, you know, was able to get some connections and network. But that's awesome. Shout out to, I don't know if you want to mention them, but the CRO for saying yes, you know, right away they don't all do that (laughs) they don't they don't i'm i'm definitely privileged 
And I know we'll get into that into like how I got into my career and where I am now. Okay. But um, definitely, I am privileged of like you know having a good group of support and like my manager is amazing. So, um, but anyway, so I went there right, and then there was this part where there's like a panel where technically, you know, everybody was represented, right? So we had like a panelist that she was black. We had a panelist that was Latino or Hispanic, and then we had someone for the LGBT community. And then I was like, you know what? Like, I feel like I want to be up there. <laughs> you know, I kind of said that in my brain because I'm like, I feel like I'm a merge and they could be probably even millions of merges, really. This is just mine in particular, what mm-hmm. pertains to me. But, you know, I am Black, but I'm also Hispanic. I was, my mom's from Belize. Uh, my dad's from Panama. So I was born actually in Belize, but I left when I was like five months. My parents were missionaries. So we literally jumped all around Central America. So I went to school in Spanish and I just feel like that, right? But here, for example, my first job, just as an example, I remember working for a clinic. I used to work in medical records and I remember coming to the front desk and someone who was Hispanic came to me and he's like, alguien que habla español. And I remember just coming up to them and be like, si, como le puedo ayudar. And he just looked at me again and said, Alguien que habla español. And I'm just like, I'm talking to you Spanish. <laughs> Literally talking. <laughs> <laughs> but it wouldn't like click, you know, like it, they couldn't like record it for some reason just because of my appearance, right? So that happens huh. a lot. It's kind of like, okay, like I'm part of this group and I'm part of this group, but I still feel like I don't belong 100% to each one. Hmm. So that's when I was like, oh my, like I wish we had like an Afro-Latino community in clinical research, because I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one that feels this way. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people out there that feel the same way, right? So I don't know, that just brought up my interest. I think there has to be some type of movement in that um, direction. And hopefully, you know, this brings some more awareness and hopefully more people out there that feel the same way can get together and we can, you know. I can think of one person, Marlene, who can pull that off. And that's you. (laughs) <laughs> to make that group <laughs> so we do that's a live funny. on this podcast no pressure <laughs> no pressure at all <laughs> I, I tend to be the person that i'm i do a lot i probably do too much and i need to like learn to like scale back like i'm one of those that i'm like oh my gosh i want to do this i want to do that i want to do that and then it's like and i literally take on so much and i think i've been like that since i know myself don't worry, I do the same. I do the same. You can't get, I don't think you can ever get over that. You just, you hope you get in the situation where you have so many opportunities coming, you can be pickier, but you're still, mm-hmm. I'm still at the point where like, um, I'm not quite there yet. Well, on some things I am, but I still have a hard time saying no. So yeah, it's, you'll never get over it. It's just part of your DNA. Yeah, I really do. Like, I mean, obviously, research is, is is huge. I didn't know what research was back in the day. I mean, my background is physical therapy. I'm actually a physical therapist. Ah, I went to school for awesome um, in Costa Rica. But as many may feel, you know, identified with that when you move to the U.S., you can always work in like your actual field. So, you know, my life took like a pivot there and actually I landed in clinical research in 2011 so um you know so I have you know that inclination of that and just like helping others and just feeling like you know like that you're actually helping so I think that's huge and then music is another big thing for me that's another story but like I just started you like 
Well, I'm actually a songwriter um, and a singer. So I just released my first album actually no way. <laughs> last month. So that's why I'm like, I'm in so stuff. Do you have a YouTube channel? <laughs> I do. It's Lenny Music. So um, I got to check Christian it out. Music. It's Christian music. So it's Spanish and English um, songs. I actually sing with my daughter and also with my brother. And we have like the first video that came out and now I'm working on my second one. So that's something else that I'm wow. working on. So it's kind of like, okay, one more thing, maybe, maybe not, but it's also another passion of mine. So we'll see, sure. we'll see where this sure. you know, leads us. But, um, but yeah, so that's kind of what, you know, brought us together. I feel in a way, you know, after going to that conference and I, I know I've seen other people interviewed here, you know, on your page. And I was like, ah, oh, I think I would like to do that. And then I just reached out and then, you know, here we go. Thank you. Thank here you. Yeah. Are. So it's amazing to to be able to have you on. And because you're, I mean, I took a look at your LinkedIn profile when you reached out to me. I was like, wow, you know, feasibility, um, regional feasibility. What's the actual title? Regional feasibility manager, well, network manager. It's just. That's a whole niche yeah. of research that like so many, <laughs> I mean, site owner, or I'm a site owner. Correct. If you get like 20 site owners on this zoom and one feasibility manager they're all gonna be approaching you like <laughs> they're they're gonna be best friends with you I know. Uh, <laughs> that's what happened at the, at the summit it was funny i wasn't going you know i wasn't planning to go because it wasn't originally for me to go but you know at the end they gave me the opportunity so i didn't have like business cards right because we're all remote so we all work all over so i don't really have to be in front of you know, sites or people. So I didn't have one. So it was funny. Everybody would take like pictures of my badge. And now like LinkedIn, everybody <laughs> like messages me because when you hear feasibility, it's like, right? Like your ears are like, oh. I mean, the site owners, like, let's just be honest. That's why they go to those things. It's yeah. really to get studies or to, yeah, it's sure it's to meet people. That's like the nice thing to say. But what's the outcome? Most of them want want studies, uh, more or less, or they want to meet like the people to position themselves for future studies. Yeah, and I know that you you're heavily you heavily talk about that, right? Networking is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can have like million degrees, but literally, if you reach the right people, you know, you're set, right? So definitely. You know, I get it. And I love talking. Like I could talk forever to people. So it made it work. It's just it's just kind of like, how do you like in my position, for example, I'm getting emails after emails either in my inbox or like on my LinkedIn because of this meeting, but sometimes I just can't get fast enough to them, right? Even though Mm. I kind of want to help. Like for example, I was able to meet this one person that works in Argentina. And like, again, like my passion is Latinos, my passion is just, you know, Hispanics in general. And I feel that's one part that's not infeasibility, is not really reached as much. Cause like normally when I have like my list of countries that we're picking when they come like in the pre-award space and then I work mainly in post-award, you see like the same countries for Latin America, right? All the big ones, Argentina, you have Brazil, you have Mexico, you have Peru, you know, but like there's these all smaller countries where I'm coming from, right? Because I'm mainly from Central America. Costa Rica, Panama, yeah. Barely see that. Belize, yeah. Yeah, like you barely see those countries. And like- Dominican Republic, you almost never see that, right? No, and going back to diversity, right? Like going back to the same thing, it's like that's also a part of diversity because even though we're all Latinos or Hispanics in a way, it's still different. So like, a way how a drug could react probably to someone in Panama might be a little bit different than someone in, 
you know, Argentina. So, so someone who's much- like familiar, way more familiar than I am with South America and Central America, no. I would. My assumption is that like those countries, like uh, Colombia, Mexico, Argentina, they're more established. Like they have more of an infrastructure, an established infrastructure for let's say medicine, right? And some of the other countries may not. Is that the only problem or are there like more subtle things of why they're not using those countries for studies? I don't know. I know like for us particularly, there's no presence probably of anyone from RCRO there. So like all the regulatory part also makes makes a huge difference. Because for example, and I know we're jumping all around, but like um, in my case, right, like I went to school in Costa Rica. That's where I got my physical therapy degree from. But do, is there anybody in my company that works at, in Costa Rica? No. <laughs> you know, from Costa Rica, there's other other countries in the, in you know, in Latin America, but we don't get to there because there's no presence, like no regulatory presence, you know, anything like that. So I think little things like that also may play a part. And also another thing, because they're smaller countries and probably their medicine is not as advanced and, you know, all that is kind of like, okay, how many doctors really practice clinical research in those countries? But then again, it's about like teaching them about these things, right? So I kind of wish like we would have some type of field coordinator or something like that that could go and like educate these countries. Because the other day I saw Panama and I listened, I was like, oh my God, I felt super excited. <laughs> I mean, not yeah. that I know any doctor there, but still, I just thought it was super cool that actually Panama came up in like a possible feasibility for a study. Um, but, but again, you know, those are the issues. When I lived in Central America, I was in medical field and I never heard about clinical research. I had no idea what it was, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think those are little things that could be better with time it just it just takes who's going to really like want to spend i guess the money in a way or another to kind of like get that to the point it's it's money and it's time you know i think the time is first like starting with the group i mean something you should consider i know you can't say no to projects but that's one that you (laughs) might want to consider if you're so passionate about it like that's a great sign that's something you should do because i know I'd, like I said, I think maybe only three other people other than you. And maybe in one of those instances, one of those three was you <laughs> again. <laughs> I, I don't even remember, honestly, <laughs> Marlene, but that's awesome. So we're going to do everybody subscribe to the Latinos in clinical research. We'll do an interview in Spanish with Marlene. I might be on it just to practice a little, but yeah, I'm not like, you know, I probably converse like a six-year-old uh, in Spanish, but it, I'm getting better. Trying to like graduate the seven-year-old. Yeah, like, like your daughter. daughter. Yeah, she's eight and she's just like her Spanish. I'm like, mamita, you need to do, like, you know how good <laughs> it is for you to speak Spanish? Like, you have no idea. You know, like when I first started in the CRO world, I used to cover Latin America, right? And now my position, I cover the entire America. So actually half, I mean, I don't know Portuguese that well, but that's what we speak, right? Spanish, Portuguese, and English, basically. And it just opens up more doors too, so... There you go. And Amazing. You refining it. Refining so it. let's let's <laughs> talk about how you got in your role. So your first clinical research role. So you immigrated to the United States after you were a physical therapist. Mm-hmm. Hats off to you. Um, my parents immigrated here when I was three. So I'm privileged in the sense that I don't think I would have immigrated. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I don't think I would have done that. So I'm privileged in that sense because... 
they did it for me. And they were both physical therapists, actually. They're foreign doctors. Physical therapists in the U.S. was their first jobs. And my dad later passed his ECFMGs and got his license here. But that was late. I was in finishing high school already. And my mom continued as a physical therapist. But so congrats to you for doing that. That's that tells me a lot about you. Where what was your plan when you moved here? So originally, I mean, I graduated college around like 2005 as a physical therapist. But when I lived in Costa Rica, if I could tell you, probably like from our entire group of like 45, if five of us actually worked in the area was a lot. So there was just not a lot of work there. It's just a lot more complicated. So because I mean, I was a U.S. resident due to like my parents and all that, but we still lived over there. We had to come in every six months. Probably someone might understand that, that lingo, but because I had to come in every six months, it, it you know it became kind of expensive, right, for it to like be traveling all the time. So since I was done with school, I was barely working. I, I used to work with kids with cerebral palsy. That's what I did. I used to go to their houses, and I did you know a couple things here and there, but it wasn't like substantial work. So they're like, why don't you just go to the U.S. because you know you're done. Your brother's still going to school. We you know my parents were still working you know in the missionary field. So I'm like, okay. Fine. It was super hard because completely different culture. Even though I came to the U.S. regularly, it was still not the same to say, okay, I'm going to go and actually live in the U.S. I was privileged because I actually got a job directly. Like I came literally with a job, right? So I used to work in medical records, Mm. literally just pulling charts, scanning, you know, looking at labs, all that, and then helping like in a front desk. Before EMRs. <laughs> Before you correct. <laughs> we still have charts, like walls filled with charts with labels. So anyways, we don't need to go back to that. But then I moved to another clinic, um, working same thing, front desk. And we had like a satellite office where I was kind of like the manager of that satellite office. And they started doing research. So that one of the doctors in that clinic started doing clinical research. So we had a coordinator in that small office where I used to go every morning because we used to do there was, we used to draw blood there, right? I used to be like the one in the front desk, blah, blah, blah. So everything started literally reviewing charts, looking for A1Cs. That was the only thing because we had a diabetes trial. So that's how the coordinator told me, hey, you're in the front desk. Hey, can you help me have this? I had no clue what clinical research was. Yeah, no that's idea. You were pre-screening. Uh, you were pre-screening I was, patient. <laughs> I was literally pre-screening. So this coordinator tells me, I think you would be good coordinator. Like she just told me this out of the blue. And I'm just like, Okay, so she told me, hey, you should probably just go try to get GCP training, I get IATA training. Like she told me like all this like general information. And there I went, like a little soldier, and actually did that because I wasn't working in PT, right? Like I already had that taken out of the way because Who is this person? The do you know remember her name? Her name is Amy. I can't remember her last name right now, but her name is Amy. If she looks at this show. Maybe she'll watch. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go, so Amy. Literally, thank that you. was like the segue to it. And I still don't remember to this day how my resume got to the to this one clinic they used to call Compass Research. They're not they're no longer around. Wow. But I started in recruitment on the phones, literally just calling patients. Hey, do you want to participate? I used to have a folder filled with protocol, basically INEs. That's the only thing that we used to look at, highlighting all the you know inclusion exclusion criteria. And I would just be calling these you know patients or subjects and then they'll I'll bring them out bring them into the clinic so I did that probably like maybe nine months or so 
Um, but because I had experience with patients, because they knew that I was a physical therapist and I was like missing that patient interaction, they're like, hey, would you like to go down to the clinic? And mm. I'm like, sure. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, well, hold, hold on, though. Okay, so this pre-screening thing. Okay, it's a, I think this is going to be a good topic, too, to just uh, double click on a little bit. But I have to pre-screen like in an hour I'm going to the office. That's why we moved, mm -hmm. tried to move the interview. Thank you so much for making it earlier. So do you notice, I'm assuming, okay, mate, correct me if I'm wrong, that you were pre-screening English and Spanish or was it English only or how, like, what were you doing? Well, there was literally only English. Oh, English, only English. English. Okay. Was, yeah. Because the, there was no Spanish speaking PI per se or doctors at that clinic okay so like I, I at that point I was really and we didn't have we didn't only had one coordinator mm -hmm. right so they she wasn't Spanish speaking so we only did English right you had yeah, to know okay. English I know like and I even though like the other clinic that I moved to like all the consents were only in, in English so that I was see. always a big thing where we were like hey we have <laughs> a doctor that speaks Spanish and this is a second clinic you know we ha I have coordinator that speak like why don't we do this like why don't we tap mm -hmm. into this mm -hmm. but that's mm -hmm. it the reason i asked was because here in yuma i moved to yuma arizona it's a border town <clears throat> we're on the border of arizona california and mexico like right where those three states and countries meet um it's very tough and we have spanish-speaking staff and providers spanish-speaking it's very tough to get a uh native spanish speaker like so no english interested in participating in research they think mm -hmm. it's they, they tend to be more hesitant to do it they usually think and probably because most of them here come from mexico and over there who knows like not every mm -hmm. provider is good right they're just mm -hmm. do whatever they feel like sometimes from what i understand so they're hesitant so i was curious to get your take on that as well but um yeah, and I think how you have to like word it more is like, okay, like the free care part, like the free care part is like, hey, you know, if you don't have insurance, you know, you can get some labs for free, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Because I think a lot of them, their mentality is like, oh, I'm just being a guinea pig. Yeah. I'm just, you know, it's kind of like that's their mentality. It's really hard to like break that. But I get it. It's because of education. Like I'm telling mm -hmm. you, I had no clue what clinical research was. Right. So like all these people have no clue what it is. So it's kind of you just tell them that and it's like, eh. like, you know, you have two people, those that are like, I'm not sure. Or those that I'm like, I need the money. Let me do it, you know. Yeah. Type of yeah. Thing. But it, it's like finding like that genuine person that really understands what clinical research is and actually wants to make an impact and a difference for many to come. I don't think it's that common. In, it's in, tough. In, you know. Or, it's or like, tough. You know, the in general. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah, I was just curious. Sorry to interrupt. So you went from pre-screening to coordinating. So, well, yeah. So like I went, I was, you know, phone pre-screener and recruitment, we called it. And I came down to the clinic. I was going to be like a research assistant. So basically I was going to be the one pulling charts and just like making, making runs for the coordinators. But that lasted one week because one of the coordinators left and they're like, hey, they're leaving. Do you want a coordinator <laughs> position? I said, of course, yeah. Sounds like 2022 <laughs> all over again. So, well, that was probably like 2012, 2013, some, somewhere around wow, there. So, okay. um, anyway, so that's how I got in. And I mean, my first study was like a Parkinson's study. Like, it's nothing like super easy. Like, this neurology trial, but. Anyway, so from there, it's where I'm now. I mean, I did do a lot of pre-screen 
Um, I think that was one of my favorite positions at the site level, to be honest. Everybody had to come through me and I just was, I loved it. I used to mm. love pre-screening. Um, but then I got into the CRO world in feasibility and the site ID. So that's what I've been doing since I've worked for this, you know, side of town, which I call it kind of like the flipping the coin. So but you went ha- from patient, like a pre-screener without even knowing it to basically patient recruiter to research assistant to pre-screening. Did you ever go coordinate? I thought I saw on your LinkedIn yep, coordinator. So I was coordinator. Co- yeah. Okay. So that's why when I said like, I literally only did like a one, one week of being an assistant and then I would come mm. a coordinator. Um, and then while I was a coordinator, then I kind of moved back to pre-screening. I was like a, an, an office director, like a site lead. That was basically the only one of this one other site and the doctor and a nurse. Mm-hmm. But like, that's when I actually got my CCRP because I think I was super immersed like in every single thing that I literally was able to grasp everything. Cause I had to do like 1792, you know, I had to do like spin my own blood, like ship. It was crazy. <laughs> Cause it was literally only me and then the PI. So I had to like create source. It was, it was so a lot. like me right now. Well, I have a few helpers, <laughs> but yeah, basically. So your yeah. story is interesting because you did go the site route. Like I tell yeah. almost everybody to do if you can. And then you got in as a senior site access specialist. Feasi- you basically got into feasibility Yeah. and you've stayed there. Like most people, th- they think, well, I want to be a CRA. Like, why did that not happen for you? Did you not pursue that? Or uh, did you just love feasibility so much? No. So I think when I was a coordinator, when I was at the site level, I think my first way of thinking was to be a monitor, right? Like go to the CRA route. Like that's like everyone. the first thing you're <laughs> like, oh, you talk to the monitors, right? Like you have to talk to them. But I already had my daughter and I think it was going to be very complicated. I mean, at the moment I was married, but I don't think my ex-husband would have been like, oh yeah, let me just stay home. And like, you know, it's just a lot of traveling. And I remember mm-hmm. talking to one of the monitors and she's like, oh yeah, I'm the one that travels and my husband stays home. I'm like, I don't think that's going to work for us. But you know, it's so I brutal. Feel it's hard. So I feel like that was kind of like my biggest like stopper limitant in, in a way is just, I knew that was just not going to fit for my family. And it was just going to not fit for me. So, but I knew I did want to go to the CRO side and I just and I was able to get into feasibility and I just think feasibility is just so critical and so important for every single study because it's literally the base for everything um and then just having that part where I used to work with Central America and South America I loved because I had to talk to these sites you know in Spanish and it just kind of like just sparked that like really good part that I love right the coordinators so think, <laughs> yeah so it kind of worked for me and then I always wanted to be a line manager. I knew that that was one of the things that I knew just because I'm such a big people person. And I felt like throughout my career, throughout my life, I didn't have the best managers per se. <laughs> so okay. I always said, I want to be like what I didn't receive. I mean, I could <laughs> tell you probably a couple, a handful that I used to, you know, that I'm actually could say that they were amazing, but I always had that in the back of my brain, but I never had like the experience to be, you know, um a line manager and that just that just happened not too long ago in December and that's where I say that the the CRO that I work for was amazing because I started there in July and they got and I got promoted ending of November my full team started in January so now I have 
14 direct reports. So it's a pretty big team that I have. Wow. Um, and I'm loving, literally. Loving Are they it. a mixture of CRAs and feasibility analysts or? Uh, so they're all called, we have it a different name. It, they're, they're called site feasibility liaisons for the, the, the company that I work for. But may, basically my team, are the ones calling the sites and trying to getting CDAs and getting, mm. you know, the feasibility questionnaires completed. I love so you guys. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're, <laughs> I'm the one that every site wants to like contract. So yeah. Terrible. Please call me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like, I'm basically over the, the liaison. So I'm basically over them just making sure, you know, that they're doing everything because I used to do that. Right. So I feel like it works full circle also because I work at the site level. I kind of, I have an empathy, right? I could understand like the site. And like, sometimes like, you're like filled with work and you were like, you know, like USA is almost on every single study, right? So it's kind of like some, some sites are like, there we go again, another email from you. You know, you have both just like either small research sites that are like, yes, we want work. Or we have others that are like, oh, I'm tired of seeing, you know, another opportunity. So mm-hmm. I think because I worked at the site level, um, it just helped me to kind of see it full circle. Um, so I'm just very thankful, obviously, that that's awesome. I first started in recruitment, which is kind of crazy. And now I'm like working here and doing this. But I didn't even realize that. I just I assumed and I've been doing this for 17 years. I just assumed line managers are only for CRAs. I had no idea, ah. you know, you had a line manager for other roles at, at the CRO level. Yeah. Oh no. That's there amazing. There is. I mean, they need something, you know, someone to. So why don't more people go it. feasibility? Like, why is it not a household name? Like a CRA? I, I never know. have anyone reach out and say, I want to be a feasibility I know. Uh, specialist. Dan. I Nobody. Know. <laughs> And I know like, that's one thing, like I haven't heard it in any of your podcasts, right? I don't think you have had anybody really doing that, no. right? I've talked about it, but just briefly, you know, not like that, that it's a career that's option. Yeah. We actually have, like my, my position when I first started in July, I used to be a feasibility lead, which is basically reviewing all the data, right? So we have the ones that call the sites, right, to actually get the CDAs, get the feasibility questionnaires. And then we have the other team that actually has to do like the analytics of the data. So that's what I used to do before. That's what I came in at. So I used to work sponsor facing, right, because I used to have to be presenting to the sponsor, hey, from these sites, pick this one, <laughs> this one, because this one gave me better response, blah, blah, blah. But so now you I'm basically actually- like when you get those surveys, you're like, all right, everybody's puts between 10 to 20 patients and this site put 200. So you call that site and say, what's going on? <laughs> Is this oh, number no, real? Because, yeah, those are outliers. Like we can't do that. Like, <laughs> I mean, we kind of see it all, right? So before I give them a report, we kind of see, have like a handful already because we kind of could gauge where it's going. The pre-award team normally gives you like a, a, a potential scenario of how many like let's say how many you know um subjects each site can probably recruit but we do have those sites where we're like okay everybody's uh, saying they can recruit 10 and you're saying you can recruit 50 mm, i don't think so like this company where i work for we don't do this but another CRO I, I work with we actually reduced the amount of re- the response so we wouldn't actually take it like 
an absolute response. So if you even told us 10, we would actually count like if you're only giving us five. I knew you because guys did that. I knew, I knew it. Some, I knew some it. of them, mine, you know, not everybody does, but some CROs do because mm. it happens. And then you just, you're telling the sponsor, right? Oh yeah, I'm giving you 10. And then at the end of the day, you only gave me three. <laughs> you right, know, it's, it's right. really messed up. And then you have to go back. Every site start. does it. Look, I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> like I had, um, Six years ago, when I was, uh, I had another site. The site's still going on, actually. But we were doing a uh, a neurology study, um, psychiatry, and that we knew the sponsor fairly well. Like it was another study from them. They liked us, so they gave us this other study, and um, they sent a new CRA to do our site selection visit. So I don't even know what we put on the feasibility survey. Or maybe we didn't do one because we worked with them before. So it's, uh, the CRA, yeah. She asked during the thing, like, how many patients can you enroll? And we said something like eight. We said a very conservative number. Okay. And she went back. She was new. And we almost didn't get the study because uh, the sponsor said, well, ask the site, like, how many patients they actually can get. And we were telling them, like, this is the real number. You don't have to, like, devalue it. This is what it is. But so many sites were embellishing, like, doubling mm. that number. We almost didn't get the study. If it wasn't for the sponsor really pushing for us to have it, we wouldn't have gotten it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, but it, it's like a double, double sword for for some reason. Like I feel because you have you have those sites where and and you we have our database, right? So we have certain sites that we're gonna go to multiple times because we have metrics of what's happened historically. Mm -hmm. So we if we have good performers, we're gonna go back to those sites. That's just a given fact. Um, obviously there's certain sponsors like this one that you're talking about that had your site as like a top site that said, I'm going with them regardless of what their numbers are. And that happens to us too. Sometimes they're just like, we want this site. We don't care what they answer. Or sometimes they even skip the feasibility questionnaire, right? Cause they're like, oh. we're, we know we're having them in our trial, right? So like you have that too, but you just have to be very careful because you don't want to like either give like a really low number or be like completely crazy but sometimes you have no clue what that really is right so it's kind of like you can't really read what we're seeing on the other side you're just kind of like blindly like trying to answer the best that you can and that's you know what the this is such a complicated topic i mean we can go an hour <laughs> just on this because and we'll probably have you on again because this is gonna be too good but the problem i do these feasibility myself like from the mm -hmm. site perspective yeah. the problem with these and I genuinely, like, I'm in a site right now. I don't have to embellish. They're the biggest provider in Yuma. They've got, like, 12 providers working for them. We have database for most things. Okay. So I'm, I'm looking at a synopsis. But the I don't think the synopsis, the way they're, they're written, um, it doesn't give you, like, a Cliff Notes version of the actual difficulty of the study, you know? It gives you a cliff notes of like a summary of the study, but until mm -hmm. you actually screen and randomize, you have no idea like just how complex or how difficult that study is going to be, even with the inclusion exclusion criteria. It's until you actually do it that you see like, whoa, you know, I have one study. I'm like, I don't think we're going to be able to randomize anybody. And I think I put like 10 on the survey. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah, and I, and I know, and I think it goes in stages, right? Because you get normally like the synopsis, then you get the full protocol, then you actually have real life, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like, okay, you see the schedule of events, you see like how this needs to be 
what's going to be happening. Mm. But you know, especially if it's like a rare disease or if it's like a recent, you know, and I feel like, and I, I think you've seen that, like, I feel like as years go by, these protocols are more and more complicated. Yeah. It's just, they just don't make it very straightforward. It's like, I just want like an easy study. I just, you know, I hear that all the time and it's just like, yeah, I don't think those are there anymore. You know, like, they don't exist. The sponsor no want their hour. money. They want yeah. ROI on the money. Yeah, there's no two-hour visits anymore, right? Like, if these take, like, forever to, like, screen, especially, like, a screening and randomization visit, they take forever. But um, it's it's tricky. It's it's really, like, a hit or miss, I feel like. You have to be this very, depending on the indication, right? If you are, like, a very specialized doctor, then you know that you're probably going to have that amount of patients that come through your clinic. Right. If it's just, like, a general clinical research center, a lot of the times you don't know, right? And I mean, sometimes you go and like do some type of like ad campaign and you still, you only get like one response from that too. So it's kind yeah, of like, okay, that yeah. can, um, so it's also for the site to be very careful, I think to what they say yes to, um, you know, if you get to that point where you could be picky, right? So if you're starting, it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to basically. That was the first study everything. we got at this site. And then. <laughs> That's the hardest study I've, maybe I've ever had oh boy. as far as like moving pieces, but we had really no way of knowing. Like, I know you're supposed to like do the survey, then they're supposed to do the site selection visit and ask, you know, confirm your numbers yeah. and then SIV too, you confirm again. Um, the, the reality is like the sites don't really learn the study, the nuts and bolts until they actually start seeing patients. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like they don't, you they don't, don't the learn time. it that way. Yeah. You don't have the time to like just sit down and literally immerse in it, you know, because mm -hmm. like I, I remember when I, I was a coordinator and you would get assigned a particular study, you know, you would print all these pages and like literally start highlighting like crazy and just like, trying to make sure like it made sense. But then you will look at like one visit and be like, oh my God, did I miss this step? Or like, what else did I have to get done here? Because again, the studies are more and more complicated, right? So it's kind of like, and then like, I feel like all the newer, coordinators tend to have difficulties with that too right because yep. you know, like how do you get trained but like you know I know that you have like that school and all that so that mm -hmm. kind of helps but until you actually do it like you said it's not gonna there's no substitute for just doing it I think yeah. that's the problem with the industry and with feasibility in general but I mean sites will say oh yeah we've analyzed this survey mm -hmm. and this is our best they don't you know, they just they just put numbers that based on their database without really looking at inclusion exclusion criteria. They might look at it like a few things, but not all of it. Yeah, yeah, and it's just trying to change that mentality. But then again, having yeah. a feasibility department at the site level too, right? Like you say, you're wearing like multiple hats, so like you mm -hmm. have to do a lot of things. Like I remember when I was like that site director, literally, I was the only one. It was only me and the doctor. <laughs> I mean, I had to do the feasibilities too. So it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to do the best I can, but I don't know all of it, right? So I'm just going to give you, a, you know, the best information that I'm able to get and just hope that I'm going to be selected for that particular yeah. trial. But, but, you know, but feasibility is, it's, it's good. You do, and you definitely have to have the right sites because at the end of the day, some studies come back to us right just because the sites let's say we put in 10 sites and then from those 10 sites only three are producing you know so sometimes they the sponsor goes back to you and say hey i need more sites now and then you have to go all over again so you really want to rescue sites avoid that 
<laughs> you want to avoid that because yeah, we just don't like that. But rescue anyway, sites are tough. Yeah. We're, we're a rescue <laughs> site on two studies right now. Uh, wow. Okay. So I think our next interview is just basically about dissecting this feasibility process, but like maybe we can end this one with what people can do if they really want feasibility. I think a lot of people watching, listening, never heard of this as a career. And it's not like CRA is the only job at these CROs. You know, there's a lot of other roles. There's a lot of jobs. I mean, I, I think a lot of things is just like transferable skills, right? Like, cause this, a lot of this is, is, a lot of customer service, if you look at it that way, right, at least for the ones that are like calling these sites, you just have to be very like personable and very attention to detail because obviously you're going to be calling not for just one protocol, but you normally, my, my direct reports, they normally have around five studies that they're going to be working on at the same time. So I think someone that's just, you know, very attention to detail and likes to be on the phone, that's a big thing. I always ask on my interviews, like when I'm trying to hire people, are you okay being on the phone 50% of the time? Because you literally, and I tell my, you know, my people, like, we're like, kind of like inspect your gadget, I feel like, you know, because sometimes like you don't have the right phone numbers to get to these people, mm. or you don't have the right person that's actually the one that has to complete the feasibility questionnaires. Sometimes I just have the doctor and the PIs really don't always get to their emails on time. So it's kind of like, you know, like, how am I going to get that to be completed? So I feel like someone that's literally like passionate about being on the phone and just like actually not being scared of doing that and actually like mm. immersing themselves in that is, is good. Actually, I think it's a great segue from being at the site level to jump into the CRO world if they actually want to do that. Um, because they look at INEs, right? Like when you're like a coordinator, for example, you're looking at like inclusion exclusion. That's like a big thing that we look at when we are doing this. Um, so it's just, you know, if you look at it, apply. Sometimes I, maybe I didn't even think I would be the right person for the position, but I still applied anyway. I feel we have this bad misconception of like, I have to be like super perfect in order for me to apply for a job, right? Nobody is perfect. We're always learning. There's always room for you to grow and to like actually learn. I mean, I'm learning every day. There's not everything I know. I mean, I'm a manager of 14 people and there's like, okay, I don't know that. I'll get back to you. I'll, I'll go and research it. Um, so I think just being like very transparent, right, with, with that. And I, I think if they see like your enthusiasm that actually transpasses like maybe now then this world is a lot of them is like just virtual. But I think they'll see that in you. And like just those transferable skills just kind of like highlight them when you're going to an interview and just kind of being like, hey, have done this for us we love taking people in our department that are at the site level because they're able to see both sides of the coin so for me like I see a huge value in hiring people that actually have been at the site level so I think it's another avenue to look at I mean like you said research is huge there's a lot of departments not only uh -huh. feasibility not only being a CRA um and even in-house CRAs too, right? I think that's something else that could happen and that could work. Before this department existed for us, in-house CRAs were doing this job. Right, right. But they're divided, right? Because they don't only work with like feasibility, they also work with like study startup, for example. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like, okay, how am I going to split my work like doing this, but I also have to get the sites up and running and get all the docs and, you know, up in a row. So having just feasibility and just working directly in feasibility is a lot better because you have again, full grasp of your 
role and you actually are more effective and actually have the time to spend, you know, with the sites in general. So I think it's a good career for somebody like if they want to get their foot in the door at a CRO, Mm -hmm. you know, and you guys are just as in demand as like a CRA, right? I mean, you guys understaffed, I'm guessing as well as everyone else. Yeah. And that's, and and obviously each CRO calls it differently and that's the the tricky part, right? So it's kind of like, I know other, other CROs call it only like side ID, side identification, because a lot of, a lot of CROs feasibility is more like the pre-award side and then side identification is the post-award side. So it's kind of like digging. I feel like not only going by the title, right? Like, okay, CRA is pretty common. That's pretty easy to just find. Okay, CRA is probably the same thing (laughs) all over. Um, But like for feasibility and for site ID, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit trickier. So literally like going in and like reading the description of like what they're looking for. Yeah. Right? Because for me, it's what separates. I think it's what separates the good from the great. And ultimately, though, those who succeed from those who don't. I just talked to someone on Instagram earlier today related to this. So, none of you know, they, they're complaining that these jobs are not standardized across all companies. And we're like, well, what are you going to do? You know, of course, it would be better. But what can we do? That's not the reality we live in. So I told them just search clinical research on these job boards, right, and see everything that comes up. You're going to learn if you do just that, you're going to learn like 20 new job titles that you've <laughs> you never thought of Googling before. Mm-hmm. That's so true. I mean, you have to be like more broad, right? Like with your search, even with other things, like think the broader you are, the, you know, the more information you could probably get. So, yeah, that's like a great way. Literally clinical research or just feasibility if you're literally working and, you know, you want to do mm-hmm. that or, or site identification. That's just going to be something that you could probably like look up and you know, hopefully find that because every single CRO has a department for disability that has to be done. Yeah, it's got to <laughs> so, get done. Yeah. So there's definitely openings out there and, and we need people with the side experience too. So I think if that's a segue, maybe you could move into CRA after doing this, that could happen too. Or the way so. around, like I, I, I think I was going to mention that like when I used to work in the analytics side, we actually had a CRA. Well, we have a, a former CRA that just got tired of traveling and she works now in feasibility. She does like the analytics side and she still had to learn, even though she had been a CRA for years. Um, but it's still like a different area of research that you probably, you know, she probably wasn't as aware about. Mm-hmm. But she was able to do it because you still at the end of the day, like the, the base is the same. Right. So just maybe some terminology will change and at the end of the day you could still study and like try to get help from your peers or have like a mentor or buddy like I'm huge about that like pairing people up that way you know they could get like cross knowledge from one from the other so um, I encourage if that's something that you know called someone's attention from today's podcast that they could look into it and maybe they'll be working with me who knows Thank you, Marlene. I really appreciate it. We'll definitely have to do a part two after the Latinos in clinical research <laughs> one. I really hope you think about putting that group together, uh, Afro Latinos in clinical research. I think I think it's a great idea, uh, and I, obviously there's a need for it. And I really appreciate you coming on this podcast today. And uh, we'll have your LinkedIn profile underneath the video and in the show notes if you're listening. So everybody go connect. And Marlene is a great person to get to know. Thank you again so much for coming on. You are welcome. Thanks for having me. And yeah, we'll be looking forward to part two at some point. 
Soon, soon. <laughs> Stay tuned, everybody. Talk to y'all later. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.